On this episode of the Marketing Chief Podcast, we are talking sports, sports marketing, sports sponsorship and integration, and the changing college landscape with name, image, and likeness rights. Join us as we welcome Paul Sickman, the Chief Executive Officer and President of Knox Sports, and the former Director of Sales and Marketing at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to this week's edition of the Marketing Chief Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Chief Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Collins. Before we get started, if you'd like to watch this podcast, tune to our website at marketingchiefpodcast.com and click on the Episodes tab or search for Marketing Chief Podcast on YouTube. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Paul Sickman of Knox Sports. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. So tell us, Paul, as the president and owner of Knox Sports, tell us what you do in the sports marketing world. And before we get started, you're going to have to keep me honest today to make sure we do talk about sports marketing and not just sports, because we could go down that rabbit hole really quickly. Yeah, we could make it an hour and a half podcast if you'd like. Yeah, so, uh, it, you know, it's easy. The easiest way to kind of describe what we do, uh, Rob, and this is our 24th year doing this, is maybe to go backwards a little bit and talk about what I did before, because it's really the opposite side of the fence. I, I worked for five years in college sports and 10 years uh, in pro sports uh, as a director of marketing for the Buccaneers, and I sold sponsorships. So uh, all of that time was out there asking for money. Uh, and, uh, and then what I did is switch sides. In 1997, I uh, opened up this shop, and now we work on the other side of the business. We basically represent companies all across the United States. And on their behalf, we negotiate and execute sports sponsorships. So instead of uh, begging for the money, I now get to spend it. A whole lot more fun. Yeah, I bet. Now, where did you start before the Buccaneers? What, what college were you? So I was at FSU, uh, and as a lot of students, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I changed majors a couple different times. But the entire time I was in school, I was working uh, in the athletic department. I spent four years working in the ticket office uh, and then a year uh, working in the marketing department. It might be interesting uh, for people to hear uh, kind of how I went from tickets to marketing. I, at the time, uh, the voice of Florida State, uh, still the voice today, um, a legend, Gene Deckerhoff. Uh, sure. Gene was the only person selling sponsorships at FSU. He was uh, the entire department. And wow. so if you wanted to get involved with marketing and sponsorship and learn that side of the business, there was only one place to go. Well, I went up to Gene's office uh, and I stood outside his office and Mr. Deckeroff, I'm Paul Sigmund, he goes, I've seen you around. I said, I would love to work for you for a year for free, just intern for you and, and learn your business. And he said, Paul, I, I really, I, I appreciate the offer, but I work alone. He goes, I don't have a secretary. I'm, I, I work by myself. This is what I do. Um, I really don't need the help. And I said, I got it, sir. I said, but uh, I'd really like to do this. So this is, you're the only option. So I'd like to do it. And he goes, Paul, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm good. I said, okay, sir. I said, what I will do is I will sit on a stool out here in the hallway. Um, and at any point during the day, you need coffee or you'd like to talk to somebody, I'll be here. So I, I got a stool and I sat outside his office. It's like eight in the morning. And about 11 o'clock, I listened to a bunch of great phone calls. It was really entertaining. And then about 11 o'clock, he goes, are you still out there? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He goes, damn it, get me a coffee. Let's do something. And that's how I got my start in marketing uh, is just grinding in a hallway, waiting for Mr. Dekaroff to give me permission. And we have become uh, very, very close friends. I, I was uh, uh, in small part uh, responsible for bringing him to Tampa uh, and giving him the Bucks gig uh, later. So I was able to pay back a little bit. But uh, learning from him was amazing just because he sold, as you would imagine, 
on relationships only. He called people and just made best friends out of them. And then before you knew it, they bought. And uh, that was an incredible lesson to learn early. Wow, Gene Deckerhoff, the voice. I've, I've never met Gene Deckerhoff. I know exactly what he sounds like in my ears right. as soon as you said his name. Right. Um, so, so what a great opportunity for you to, to work under a legend. Is he, is he still doing the um, Bucks games? Uh, he does. He does both. Yeah, yeah he, okay. he still uh, so, goes back and forth. He's got a, uh, a kind of a, a RV that he drives down to uh, down to Tampa from Tallahassee. A lot of times okay. uh, his wife Ann will drive it for him because he's exhausted after uh, doing a game till midnight uh, to try to do the double dip and flies all over the country and does both. But he's still doing it. You know, Rob, it was interesting. I, and I spent, like I said, five years. You were talking about uh, one of your relatives earlier working in the ticket office, which is really the great entry point for a lot of sports people. Every a lot of sports uh, people, the, the kids that graduate, that's the only job they can get is in tickets. And that was my start. It was about four years in tickets. And, uh, and and what does that mean? Well, every organization is basically the same. You're basically, you're the public face of the organization, right? You're, right. you're the first thing, the last thing that a lot of people ever see uh, when they when they deal with an organization, not from a sponsor's perspective, just from a, a consumer-facing perspective. And you know, when I started in tickets, you know, after a couple of years, it became clear to my boss at the time that I was uh, I was pretty good at conflict resolution. So he, uh, whenever there would be a couple that came that was part of the divorce and one couple and the couple were fighting over the tickets, uh, he'd go, Paul, go handle that one. So I go to the Fuck, front window great. and have to listen to, you know, I listen to, to uh, Tom and Mary uh, scream at me about who should get the tickets. So ticketing is not all fun. Uh, and, and learning conflict resolution was some early lessons that uh, helped later when I got into negotiation. In your current company, do you represent sports properties at all or strictly companies that are trying to get into sports properties? No. And thank you, Rob. I, I kind of went backwards. I didn't, I didn't finish going forward. So yeah, so we only represent corporations. So our, what Knox Sports does right now is again, we have 25 to 30 different companies across the United States, um, you know, anything from hospitals to restaurants to insurance companies. And we work on their behalf, hundred percent for them uh, and negotiate on their behalf with um, sports teams all over the, over the country, college pro, uh, we even have three uh, companies uh, that only do youth because they want to talk to moms and dads uh, in that genre. So we do college pro and youth all over the United States, but we work on behalf of the corporation uh, and then negotiate and execute on their behalf. So, because uh, it's hard. If you're working for whatever company you're out there working for, uh, you're in a vacuum because of who you are. You might only get pitched by two or three companies or two or three teams a year. And you're looking at all of this information they gave you and you're trying to figure out, is this a good deal? Is this worth what they're telling me? It's almost impossible to do that in a vacuum. But if you're able to do it for a living over 20, 30 years, and you're able to do it all over the United States, you start to have a feel for what everything is worth. You understand the net worth. And that's only one part of the equation. Uh, the other thing that is incredibly true uh, is that teams, especially college and pro teams are probably a little lazy uh, they don't think outside the box and they don't creatively try to accomplish exactly what is perfect for that company. They're, they're giving them uh, a rate card based on this is the inventory I have today. We think this is what you should need. Uh, and, and our role is to come in and be creative and say, okay, what are the real goals and objectives? And we're going to ask the team uh, to perform things that are probably uncomfortable, but ultimately it's about getting to the objective of that client. And then ultimately, ultimately, it's about getting a renewal because you don't want to ever do a one-term deal. You want a client to love it and want to do more. And over the, the years that you've been doing this, I would guess the measurement for how these things are successful has changed. You know, I, sports properties always talk about eyeballs and impressions and, you know, without 
without even the media component, because there's certainly a media component and ratings and that kind of thing, and how much your sign is worth because it's been on TV for three seconds, et cetera. What are the other kind of measurements that companies are using these days? Well, I think any measurement that dictates success for your company is what you should do. I mean, I think what happens too often, and this is why a lot of um, you know national brands, they mistakenly use traditional agencies to do their sports. And I'm, I'm not selling for myself, I'm just a fact, is they use impressions. And I'm sorry, but impressions don't always equal sales. In fact, they rarely equal sales. And so the end of the day, you should get way beyond that if you want to actually measure success with your relationship. It should be, okay, if I'm a restaurant, I don't care about impressions. I care about how many people bought my food, right? And so I need to measure that relationship by the number of people that came in off the street and purchased my product. And I need to measure that. What makes your company work and what made it successful that's what your sports relationship should bring to you. And so the old school way of saying, hey, that sign was great. I got this many people, you know, those eyeballs, this many. No, that's only a part of the equation. Branding is still what sports does best, but it's not ultimately how you should measure your deal. That's right. And, that, and, and that's part of why I asked the question to see how it's changed over time. Mm -hmm. I can see your value to companies immediately to be able to counteract that old school thinking of impressions and eyeballs and that that type of thing. How how has this impacted your business during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. We, can we skip the pandemic? Just go to 2021. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, well. no, no, the, no, the answer to the question is, is, you know, last year, and I think for every team, um, it was no different for us. Uh, every organization out there, clearly there was almost no fans, if any. Um, and the fans were if they were following their organization, they were following them in a different way. They were consuming that media differently. It was up to us to figure out a way to attach to that consumption, right? So if you are only following your team online through social or on television or radio, we had to find a way to still accomplish our goals through those new media, uh, as opposed to the inside experience, the onsite experience that we, that we relied so heavily on before. So, I mean, Honestly, as soon as the pandemic hit, it was immediately all the deals we had, hundreds of deals across the country, immediately needed to be renegotiated, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was just, okay, this is the reality. And I know we have wonderful clauses in there and we have all this uh, force majeure language in the back end. Uh, and there were some deals we had to just basically take a redshirt beer and say, we're gonna come back when the pandemic's done. But the majority of the relationships, we were able to go in, renegotiate those deals. Again, go back to the core. What does client X need? Uh, and if they need to drive business to site, if they need to get takeout business as opposed to come in business, if they need to have data, uh, we can still accomplish it. We just have to figure out a way with those organizations on how to accomplish it. And, and believe me, the teams are going through hell uh, already, right? And so they were more than willing to say, what are the goals? Let's get there. Uh, I mean, you saw college athletics for the first time ever having field level signage in football, right? The, the hedges had signs, the, you know, the, the brick uh, had signs, all these beautiful venues for the first time ever were littered. And in some cases ugly, right? Because they made it look like a pro stadium, but they had to deliver. And those signage might've been asking for something. We may have had live drop-ins asking for the order in some way. We may have had uh, social, uh, social media um, uh, campaigns that were incredibly aggressive. Uh, in an era when they didn't want to give it away, all of a sudden now social became crucial. And social is crucial and everyone knows that. But in the terms of how it works in sports, it is unbelievably important now to make that a part of the campaign and make that a part of what you're trying to accomplish. So that, again, what are the goals and objectives of the client? And then let's figure out the tools 
uh, that maybe weren't there last year, but in the pandemic, we have to use them to try to get to the finish line. We always looked at it, you know, people say, why would you associate with a sports property? You know, you have your own brand. I kind of look at it as, you've heard the phrase, you know, other people's money, using other people's money to build your business. I looked at it, other people's brand equity. We would partner with sports teams in markets where we had maybe lower awareness and that kind of elevated our brand awareness in the market. It elevated people's perception and then we would create, um, you know, customized products tied to the Atlanta Braves as an example. How, for you, how is it different working with uh, college properties versus professional properties, uh, restrictions and kind of set up, uh, you know, how they're set up to do business? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, and, and Rob, you're right. I mean, ultimately the reason sports works is because fans is short for fanatic, right? And so a person who is deeply, deeply tied to a brand, the idea is we want to change their habit. Whatever that habit is, we want to change their habit because of that tie to the brand, okay? Because I'm a fan of the, of the Georgia Bulldogs, I see X, I'm now going to do Y. And that's it. And, and, and so that fanaticism is what we have to play on. And no one, I mean, that fanaticism doesn't exist in, in real life anywhere else other than sports a lot of places, right? So sports is where people are bang. And because of that, that, that interest, they're going to potentially change a habit. College and pro, the beauty of college and pro, uh, the difference is we defer to college a lot. Number one, it's less expensive, uh, which when I tell you the rest of it doesn't make any sense. It's less expensive and you still get nine months uh, of a relationship and ultimately a year relationship because most pro seasons are, are three to five months long, maybe six months. If the pro team doesn't play well, doesn't have that great year, you will see the fan interest and the engagement with the, the relationship sometimes, you know, drop off as well, which is natural, right? It's pro athletes. I'm angry. These things aren't happening. I'm a fan. This, and they kind of go south. Well, in a college relationship, the beauty of it is, is that if the football team uh, doesn't perform. The basketball team's coming right behind it. They might. If the ba basketball team doesn't perform, the gymnastics team is coming right behind it. They might do well. If they don't perform, well, then the baseball team's coming and the softball team's coming. And you've got this nine months of an opportunity to capture, right? And right. so, and after all of those things, the difference between college and pro is you as a fan went to the school. You have an affinity for that school regardless. And so after all this whole thing, you're still in. And so the, the, the advantage of having the, the affinity of that college fan is really a year-round relationship, uh, multiple sports, multiple opportunities to touch, multiple audiences to touch. Uh, and oh, by the way, after all those things, it's probably half cost, right, of a pro relationship. And you're like, okay, then why? Yeah, so that's really, it's interesting because, but it's also part of the country. The affinity you have is dictated a lot of times by where you are. Uh, college relationships in the Northeast, uh, in the upper Midwest, not as powerful sometimes uh, as a pro relationship can be. Again, what is the fan affinity? You know, go through the airport and see what they're wearing and tell me who you should sponsor. That's a great point. Go to the airport. People wear what they believe in. And, and what I hear you saying is, man, college fans are much more loyal, much more fanatic, much more long term, really. They, they make it through the, the bad times. You were I don't know if this is a coincidence, Paul, but it seems like when you when you were at Tampa Bay, they didn't have a winning season. No, no. Ten, I, when I left, they, yeah, when I, I, I did not catch a playoff check in 10 years. And I don't think there is, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that as soon as I left, they got better. They, they got better. No, yeah, it's, that is, I think it's almost unassailable that, that as soon as I walk out the door, I, my last year was Tony Dungy's first year. 
I got out of his way and things started clearing up and they really, they, get, they became a great football team. So that's, 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 not, uh, that's not a coincidence. The learning part for you, all kidding aside, selling a, a franchise that's not playing well on the field, how much more right. difficult is that for you? And, and does that give the brand more leverage or, or not really? No, I mean, it was a, here's the thing. I mean, the Rays were not around. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so there were only, uh, there were only two entities in town, the lightning who were not what they are today, uh, which is an incredible success story. Uh, but the bucks were the big dog in town. So that was an advantage because win, lose or draw people cared, which is important, but we were awful, uh, incredibly awful. Uh, and, and so we never won more than six games in 10 years. And so you had to do things to engage your fans. I mean, I'll give you a, uh, an example. I mean, we, we basically had to create inventory because you, what you had to sell, you just couldn't oversell it. You had, to, you had to make clients happy. You had to have them come back year over year over year. So we were constantly looking for new opportunities. Uh, we went to our ownership and convinced them back when, I know this seems crazy now, uh, to sell, to get a brand new video board and to sell on it because video boards were not everywhere back then. They had matrix boards. Wow, I mean, I know I'm old as dirt, but I mean, those, you know, so having a video board, well, when we had it, the very first year we had it, we, I told the owner, I said, we're going, this is going to be complete prostitution, okay? We're going to sell every single replay is gonna be sponsored and every single break is gonna be full of commercials, okay? Because you can't have the video board, have this amazing new thing and the fans and then ease them into the relationships. You gotta have it, the cost of the video board is all these sponsors, okay? And then the fan says, oh great, I got a video board, but here's what comes with it. Okay, I'm okay with it and we did it. And so we had 160 avails all of a sudden, bang, that we gave out on a video board, which is brand new inventory. Two years later, uh, we were trying, again, trying to come up with new inventory, trying to come up with ways to create new revenue. And in the parking lots, I'm watching people tailgate, watching them do what they do. And I said, what if we brought games to the parking lot? I know it seems normal now, but it was not normal then. And we said, let's have a gigantic tent. We'll ask our sponsors, we'll give it to them in the first year. Have them come in and have them bring interactivity. Have them bring games that people can play and they get a coupon and they can do this and they get to walk away or they get a tchotchke. We'll just do this and we'll put a big tent around it. We'll call it Bucks Bash and we'll just let everything be free the first year and then charge them later. Well, we did it for one year, and then the next year, the sponsors loved it. They're like, oh, my gosh, we had thousands of people that came through and had a great entertainment experience. And so then they paid us for that opportunity. Well, a year later, now we're in the year third year, we had AMC movie theaters that was doing a little preview show in there. We had all these different – well, the, the, the league came down, the NFL came down. They were having a Super Bowl there in two years. And they came to us and said, hey, how'd you do this? What is it? We presented up to the NFL, and that became the kind of the genesis for the uh, for the NFL experience that they have now um, outside the Super Bowl. Is that concept, you know, is just creating something for fans to interact and change a habit. Uh, in that case, uh, it was it was just new inventory for us, so it worked. So, yeah, when you have a when you have a bad football team, you can't just say, "Hey, we're we're such and such, come buy our stuff." You got to find a way to get fans to change habits all day long. I find it interesting that healthcare facilities and hospitals sponsor sports. Um, I don't know what, what I'm sick. I go to the closest place, right? You know, or I go, or I go to the place that has the specialist for whatever that issue is. I find it interesting uh, that those types of companies jump into sports sponsorships or sports integration. So really, I guess I'm asking art in your experience on, on either side of the fence, are there certain categories that just make more sense for sports integration than other categories 
Yeah, I mean, it, the, the easy answer is yes, there are. What's what's funny is that that doesn't stop people from spending badly, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, you talked about hospitals, and yes, hospitals spend, uh, the healthcare industry is spending a ton of money in athletics. I'm not sure it's very well spent. Um, we have a healthcare client uh, that is uh, spending money with us, and they are doing it very targeted. They're doing, they're one of our youth sports clients. The reason is, is because in the markets where they are the leading uh, hospital for youth care, in those markets, they're spending in the youth categories. They're buying little league, soccer leagues, et cetera, and blanketing the entire city and saying, if your child is hurt, I want to remind you that we're the only place you should go to get care. Okay. That's a direct correlation. I get that. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. branding to a high degree. Um, but you asked the question, but it all goes back to originally what we talked about in terms of goals. If you're, our, if you're an insurance company and you want data capture, you want to be able to hand your agents an ability to go get new business. Why would you not use sports to capture data? Mm -hmm. Right. Let's sponsor a flyaway with the University of Michigan to go watch their basketball team play a preseason tournament in Hawaii, get 20, 50,000 entries, hand those to my agents and say, now call all those people and talk about them being Michigan fans. Right. It gives you a warm lead. So insurance in that respect as well. But then there's the companies out there that are uh, that are insurance companies that are just branding. They're just spending stupid money because the other guys are spending stupid money and they feel like they need to spend that kind of money just to brand. Not very smart. Uh, you should really be more targeted in what you do uh, and have a goal in mind rather than just say, I want more impressions than they got uh, because we're price sensitive. So yes, there are, and, and certainly local relationships. One of the things that's interesting, uh, you're talking about you know restaurants, any local, local company. A lot of times they're gonna spend money badly as well. They'll spend money in college football, when the reality is they should be spending money in baseball or softball or women's basketball because they can spend a tenth of the money and have an incredibly captured audience because sponsorship is different, right? If you're in a football game, Rob, you're a fan. You're sitting in a football game, there's a break. There's a two minute timeout. You are watching the huddle. You're watching the coaches interact. You're talking about what just happened in the last 45 seconds in the last five plays. Yes, there's things happening on the video board. Yes, there's under, but you're not 100% engaged in that sponsor activity, right? Now go you put yourself in a baseball game where there is a pitching change for a minute and a half. You are going to probably be completely enraptured by that ridiculous contest that's happening on the field right now in that minute and a half. And that sponsor activity is going to hit home with you. And it's also about a 10th of the price of football. So if I'm a sponsor and I say, I have limited funds, do I want to be one of 50 people that shows up for 10 seconds at a football game? Or would I like to be completely encaptured the people with a traditional type piece at a college baseball game? So it's, it's again, it's really important that sponsors understand that it's not a cookie cutter. So Paul, a lot of discussion about college players being compensated. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are your thoughts on that? And does that have an impact on how sports integration, sports sponsorships are sold? That is such a loaded question. I, and I am, I am on the minority here, Rob. I, I am not one of the syncophants across the country that thinks college kids, um, should, we should go down this path. I know it's going to happen. I know that I'm the old man get off my lawn um, response here. Uh, but if I was uh, lucky enough to have a son uh, that, that got a scholarship opportunity to Duke, and I just knew that that was a $240,000 gift to me, I wouldn't be asking for more. Here it is. I, there's not a lot of athletes that are going to be incredibly impacted by this. Uh, not every campus has 14 Trevor Lawrence's. Uh, most of them only have one. And, and so 
it, what's interesting is there will be some athletes I think it's going to be awesome for. Think about uh, at, at Florida State, they had a, uh, a soccer player um, that was one of the best 10 women soccer players in the world um, that was from, I think she was in Argentina, somewhere in South America, and she was on their national team. She, as a collegiate athlete, uh, will probably in this new world be able to make some serious money. And that's amazing for these, some of these Olympic athletes to be able to do that because not every athlete is a full scholarship situation. Baseball is partial scholarships. A lot of uh, men's sports are partial scholarships. So maybe some of those athletes would be a big deal. But the majority, the vast majority of athletes, this is not going to impact a lot. This is going to be a very small deal. Where I am incredibly scared of NIL uh, is in the recruiting realm uh, and, and how it will affect you know, my company, and I think the reality of college sports, because there are so many companies, uh, if you're a head coach out there, you're going to have to have a transfer portal assistant coach, and then you're going to have to have a uh, NIL coach, so that you go Sorry. to a, it, a, a, NIL, name, image, and likeness, which is what you're referring Th to in terms of Th paying thank athletes. You. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, and so basically, if you're a, a high school athlete, and you're the star, you know, the star safety, and you've got five schools that are tracking you right now, and you're trying to decide between these schools, and we're assuming that everything is above board, there are some schools out there that say, you know what, I'm going to guarantee you that this car dealer is going to give you $20,000 a year just to sponsor their car to be associated with their dealer. Um, and that will be part of the pitch to bring them on campus. And it's a part of a legal pitch now uh, to say, we've already got some, some NIL uh, endorsement opportunities lined up for you. Uh, and, and how that slippery slope remains on the legal side and not on the, it, 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 you can only imagine what, how difficult it's going to be. Now, how that translates to us, we have never, as a company, uh, have never been a huge fan uh, of endorsements uh, in and of themselves. I know there's companies out there all across the country, this is all they do is they recommend athletes um, and, and go down that path. But it, it to me, there's a, you're only one bad incident away from having your brand be embarrassed. I would much rather rely on the organization. I'd rely on the team uh, to, to take us down that path rather than relying on an individual. Uh, and especially, now we're talking about, that's a pro athlete. It always has been a pro athlete question, right? Now imagine we're talking about an 18 to 22 year old. It is tough. The, the thing that, that I can't get my head around yet is if they go down this road, how does it, how does it impact the team aspect? Right. How's the locker room work when, when, when those two guys are getting a little money and, and the other, you know, 83 right. guys in the, in the locker room are not, how does the one swimmer uh, who happened to be an Olympian, uh, how does their head get through the locker room uh, door? You know, when, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and because it, again, it's not for everybody. It's there's only a small percentage of people that are going to make anything and the money is not astronomical money, but it only takes a little bit to have the locker room fall apart. Right. Does the athlete then, are they negotiating their NIL or is it the school negotiating on their behalf? Yeah. And, and, and every school is out there trying to hire firms that are going to be act as these middlemen. And so there are, there are pop-up companies um, right now all across the country that are all pitching colleges to be the firm for their athletes. And so that's what's happening right now. I, I yeah, I, I, I'm hoping um, that this is a huge puff and then it kind of filters into something which is, we think, kind of more normal because, I, again, there's just not that many athletes on every campus that are true candidates, but I, I'm, I'm scared to death of the recruiting implications. So, so what about uh, any, any type of management tips? You have, a, you have a firm, you're the owner, you're the president, you're managing people at different levels in their career, and maybe what advice would you have for people that want to get into this type of business? In terms of hiring, what's so interesting right now 
Uh, and it's really developed since, you know, in the last 15 years. It, every university in the country is seemingly robbed now because they are businesses. All these universities are businesses. They all have sports marketing or sports administration degrees, right? Not, when I was not, in school, not, there was... I was going to say, not something that, that was available when you were in school. Yeah, I mean, when I was in school, there was three, We had, you know, in the country. And now there's probably 300. Uh, and, and so if you think about the fact that there's 300 universities that all they care about is filling their classes. Do they deep down care if they fill positions? No, their placement rate is not on their brochure. It's we have this degree. So kids come to the college because they have the degree. Uh, and the university says, great, you filled my classes. Well, now you've got hundreds of thousands of kids every year graduating with a degree in sports. And there are only so many teams to place them. And, and there's just not enough jobs out there to have it. So the good news for a company like mine is that I, you know, if we ever put something on uh, any website, you know, LinkedIn, hey, we have a position, wham, we get you know, a couple thousand resumes overnight because all these kids are uh, attuned to the fact that this is an opportunity. Uh, and, and so that's awesome and also hard because you, know, you can't get through all that. But from a, a, a young person perspective, what I would always advise them to do is don't think you can go to school get the degree, spend a couple summers at the gap and think you're gonna get a job in sports, okay? You're going to have to, while you're in school, take advantage of the opportunities that are in school uh, to work in the athletic department, work in the, uh, the marketing uh, reseller that's on campus and get that four years of experience or five years of experience. So when you walk out, you have a real chance to get a job. And, and what's wonderful right now is with the Power Five schools out there, uh, they have all these networks that are now online, the ACC network, the SEC network, the Big Ten network. Mm -hmm. So they have another 50 jobs that are there for on-campus kids to take. So those opportunities are there as well. So if you happen to go to a Power 5 school, which has got a backbone, got a multi-media uh, rights holder, and maybe has a network out there, those are a lot of opportunities for you to volunteer, earn nothing, get five years of experience, two years of experience, whatever it takes, so that when you call uh, someone like Rob Collins, you have a chance. For you, how was that? How was that transition from a college role to a professional role? Well, first of all, I was incredibly lucky, but I also—I uh, mean, I, I was probably one of a bunch of resumes, uh, and I went down and interviewed and, and was offered the job, which was amazing. Uh, but I also started uh, at sixteen thousand dollars and couldn't have been more happy to start at that gigantic salary. Uh, and so I knew that 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 was the cost of tea in China. I had to basically start at nothing and earn my way up and. And that is the reality of sports. You're not going to earn a lot of money. You're going to do it because you love it. Oh, by the way, you're also going to work 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So if you think like your buddy who's got the job with Bank of America who works 40 hours a week and is starting at 50, yeah, you're going to work 80 hours a week and you're going to start at 22. Um, and that's reality <laughs> in sports. But you get to tell him that you work for the Atlanta Braves. Um, so that, you got that. And you get to go to 81 events for free. If that's good or bad, maybe by the 70th event, you're like, I really wish I worked for Bank of America. Right. Um, but anyway, it's, it is a different world. It's a passionate world. If you dig in and love it, it'll be a career that you'll never, you'll never want to give up. So it's just, it's just a, it's an interesting deal, uh, but you have to have the right tenor for it. And, and what's your outlook coming up? I would guess that given the pandemic and that people have been restricted, that it's just going to go bank gangbusters in the coming months. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I do think so. I think, I mean, everyone in, everyone in our industry is feeling really, really good. Uh, I think baseball is going to lead the way because of where we are in the calendar. Uh, I, most of the baseball teams that we have deals with have told us there's not going to be a slow spigot that basically we're going to go from 20 or 30% outside of Texas. We're going to go from 20 or 30% in our audience, and then we're going to go bam, full. And, and that's going to happen at the inflection point, Rob, with the pandemic. There's going to be a spot when everyone who wants a vaccine has it, 
You know, if everyone who wants it has it at that point, if the vaccine's available to everyone that wants it and they have it, the sports teams no longer have the liability, right? If you go to a venue, you go to an event, you go to a concert, whatever those things are, if everyone, if you had a chance to get a vaccine and you chose not to, that no longer is a venue issue. I know we're a legal country, right? And, and so if that liability shifts to the individual rather than the, than the organization, that's when the spigot turns. I think it's going to turn on big and that might be, what it, you know, based on what happens in our country, maybe that's in June, maybe it's in July, maybe it's in August, but I think we're going to get there beforehand. And so I think the whole fall is fine. So uh, from our perspective, after baseball, we believe college football is going to be in great shape. And so what does that mean for our industry? That means our industry is going to be in great shape. So I really believe that that our company and, and all those teams out there are going to be looking at 2019 numbers and thinking, in 21, let's try to get back to 19. Good. I hope you're right. Hey, our last section before we end here, I just have a couple of, of quick questions for you. Yep. Um, best sporting event you've ever attended in person? Oh, my gosh. This is, this is a crazy answer, Rob. My best, the most exciting event I've ever been to is going to blow your mind. It was the 2020 Winter Olympics snowboard cross. My wife and I went to this. We got tickets. We went up to Vancouver. Uh, it was an entire day. It was eight hours. We were sitting there watching all of the snowboard crosses where these guys are on boards and they go through this long entire path and then they're passing each other and knocking each other out. Only the top two survive in every round. Uh, and so it's just incredibly engaging. You're watching and we're, there's only like two or 3,000 people there. And Canada had never won a medal outside of hockey in the Olympics. And so the Canadians were there going nuts. And the top four people in the world in snowboard cross were all Canadian. So they knew this was their event to finally get it. And the, uh, and there was an Amer the top two Americans got knocked out. And so the old guy, Seth Westcott was his name, this, this old third place American guy kept surviving, surviving all day long, kept surviving and gets to the finals. And it's like two Canadians our boy Seth and like two other people from whatever country. And then, it, and so we're eight hours invested in this event. And this guy, Seth comes from fifth place off the, off the jump. And at the very last jump and in the finish line passes the Canadians to win it all. My wife and I with our red, white, Whoa. blue stuff went out of our minds. <laughs> it was the greatest. I, I didn't know anything about the sport going into this thing. And I came out of there saying that was the most enjoyable event of my life. It's crazy. So that's a crazy answer for a great. No, that, that, that's a great story. I love <laughs> I've never been to Olympics. It's, it's on my bucket list to do that. That would be super fun. It is. What, what about the most gracious professional athlete that you've ever met? Uh, well, I'm going to be provincial here. Um, I, I would say that Warwick Dunn and Derek Brooks are mm -hmm. two of the greatest. Um, they, they, I was lucky enough to have both of them um, with us on the Buck staff. Uh, Derek actually walked into my office and said, I need to do something really nice for kids. Could we come up with an idea? Uh, and, and we sat down and created the, the what ended up being the Brooks Bunch, where he took kids all around the world um, in this amazing thing. And, and Warwick, with what he does uh, because of his background and what he does for families. Those are two incredibly humble, wonderful people. I'm sorry to just give seminal answers, but they are really, really amazing athletes and great people. For listeners, you have your own podcast, which is very informative with one of your colleagues from University of Tennessee. Yes. Um, and that's on your website, right? Not knocksports.com. It is. Uh, it's called Knox Talk. It's available everywhere. And thank you for listening, Rob. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, and yeah, we just attack sports, uh, uh, usually collegiate sports sponsorship questions every week. And 
have a bunch of guests. So it's, uh, it, it's short. It's only about uh, usually 15 to 25 minutes. Uh, and I had a lot of fun. And Brandon Parks, from University of Tennessee, is my co-host. So it's, he's in Knoxville, and we're Knox Sports. And so we came up with the name Knox Talk. Love it. Love it. Well, Paul, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been fun talking about sports integration, brands, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the status of the industry and where it's going. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate you having me. If you like what you hear on the Marketing Chief Podcast, be sure to subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or YouTube and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on the Marketing Chief Podcast.